Welcome. Good evening. Welcome to Calvary Chapel's midweek service. Good having you all here. This evening we'll be discussing perseverance. Tonight we'll be looking at perseverance on an individual basis. We'll be uh, just studying the life of Joseph and we'll also include some passages from the New Testament for the church as well. I was going to do some modern examples, but I'll save that for when we're live, when we're not pre-recording these. But um, uh, you know, a lot we can get a lot of encouragement from this subject, and I uh, look forward to going through that with you uh, this evening. One verse we'll be looking at is Romans chapter five, verses one through four. Before we get to Joseph, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Let's pray, please. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your entire word, Lord, how it instructs us, encourages us, Lord, and we're so grateful for the examples of men like Joseph and Paul and so many others that did have to persevere, Lord. And uh, we pray just to apply your word to our lives tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, real quick, uh, I was thinking of stories of, of perseverance in my own life and something that uh, our family had to go through very recently was probably not really a story of perseverance at, or at all or being an overcomer. I felt like an overcomer after... I did this, this may be more just sheer craziness, but recently we had, a, uh, we had a bathroom vent come off the wall on the side of our house and we had an infestation of Japanese hornets, hornets which you've, if you've ever seen those, they're about an inch and a half long and yellow. They sound like flying tanks when they are buzzing around and uh, just a very dangerous insect. And so we had those in our, above our bathroom and it got to the point where it sounded like they were actually digging through the drywall and they would soon be bursting into the house. And so I wasn't exactly sure how to handle that. And so uh, I prayed, I remember Jackie was out shopping and I prayed what to do because it sounded like they were coming into the house more and more. We had tried spraying and things like that. And the trouble is that only gets two or three of them at a time. And that just wasn't working. There were just so many of them coming in and out of the house through this bathroom vent. And also if you try swatting them, then that releases a pheromone or a hormone, which tells other hornets that there's an attack going on and then they, they come and attack whatever's attacking the nest. And so I was concerned about doing that. Anyway, these, these things are very dangerous and they, they remind me of these, uh, the things that come out of the, the abyss in Revelation that come up and sting people later. They're, they're that bad if you haven't seen them. But so anyway, I prayed to the Lord and, and about what I could do. And so I got a ladder up there. It's a second story. I got a ladder up there. I put on a, a green uh, raincoat so I didn't have any loud colors on me. And I just pulled the hood over my face. And I brought our whole house vacuum up just to see if I could suck one of those up. And that was very nerve wracking because they were flying all around. And I just wanted to see if I could get one where maybe if I could start reducing their numbers, then somehow I could temporarily seal that vent and then lock the ones inside on the inside and then prevent the, the ones from, from on the outside from getting in. And so I did go up the ladder and 
with the vacuum, I was able to start sucking them and they would come and investigate me some and a, a couple of times, two or three times, I had to scoot down the ladder really quickly, almost panicked, not wanting to get one of those stinging my face or anything like that. And so, but the Lord blessed it. I didn't end up getting stung at all, thank the Lord. And I was able to, to reduce their numbers enough that I could get up there and then just really start getting them into the vacuum system before they could even come out of the house. And then the ones would come behind me and I would, I would let them kind of try to settle in and get them vacuumed as well. And so uh, that was quite an ordeal trying to get that under control. And we're still, still dealing with a little bit of it, but I think we've got the situation under control. That, that may actually be necess necessity and desperation that caused that to happen versus actual persevering. But pre pretty entertaining story I was thinking about if I actually had the family videotape that just to maximize the entertainment value, I'd put that on video and made me, made me wonder if I fell while getting stung, what the video would look like, if it would be kind of the quick fall off the ladder where you see the cameraman drop the, drop the phone and then run and help, or would it be the ever entertaining slow motion and getting stung at the same time? But thankfully, didn't end up happening and, and so we're through that. But Nonetheless, that's uh, just something that we've had to go through here recently. But now we'll look at the, the biblical version of that, which is a lot more exciting than that. A couple of definitions. Number one, to persevere, just from the, the secular standpoint or from the, the dictionary standpoint, states to persist in a state of enterprise or undertaking in spite of counter-influences, opposition, or discouragement. So that's sort of the non-biblical definition. And then in a biblical sense, and it's not that, not that we as Christians use different definitions or anything like that, but in the biblical sense, we, we take that orig original definition and then we, we have a little bit different emphasis on it in addition to that, to the, um, the first definition. And in the biblical sense, it states, the steadfast effort to follow God's commands and to do his work through persevering in God's work, Christians prove their deep appreciation for God's saving grace. As a result of perseverance, the Christian can expect not only to enhance the strength of, strength of the church, but also to build up the strength, build up strength of character, just like we read in Romans chapter five. And perseverance is associated with men like Job, as I'm sure you've all heard as well, but we see it in a personal sense with Joseph as well. And I love the story of Joseph. It was my introduction to the Old Testament seen in a play at Ford's Theater. And there's really two stories being told at once. There's the historical narrative, but then there's also the future promise as well that you see. So you see two things being told at one time. And you also see the, the Messiah being foreshadowed, which encourages us even during a trial. So you see the Messiah being, Messiah being foreshadowed, Jesus being foreshadowed through the life of Joseph, even as he suffered. And Joseph's story begins at Genesis 37. And you know the story well. well, we'll only hit the highlights. We'll be covering quite a bit, but only hitting the highlights. And so uh, Genesis 37, three and four states, Jacob made a coat for Joseph, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. So this may not actually be sin for, jo for Joseph. I don't think it is, but it seems like he probably knew that they were irritated with him at least, putting it mildly. 
And then he still tells them the dream. So I think he needs some re refining at this point where they're already kind of agitated and he's, he's kind of like, oh, no, really, you like this. I had these dreams where your sheaves and your stars all bowed down to mine. So he tells them anyway. He is technically in innocent of sin, but um, he may need a little refining by this point. But he still technically hasn't sinned. He's one of the very few blameless people in the Bible. Next, we see him going to, to Dothan to look for his brothers. In verse 18, it says, Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said one to another, Look, this dreamer is coming. So there's a plot to kill him. They stripped him of his robe. Reuben delays them just a bit and places him in a pit. But Judah really takes a leadership role to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites and not have his blood on their hands. And so Joseph is sold for 20 pieces of silver, which was less than the price of a slave, according to Exodus 21:32. But during this time, we get no indication of panic on Joseph's part. So next, uh, interestingly, it's, uh, it's always been a little curious to me, but we, we take a little interlude or we take a detour to look at Judah's life in Genesis 38. And it seems kind of strange to break away from Joseph until you really see that another character is being formed, there's really going to be a relationship between two parties, which is going to be Judah, who is representative of his brothers, and then Joseph. So you see that, that representative party being formed here in Genesis 38. And Judah, not only does he represent the brothers, but he will eventually represent the nation. So remembering that Judah's first two sons and his Canaanite wife all died, Judah wanted Tamar to be in reserve for his third son. And then he's, he's in a situation where he has acted dishonorably and she also deceives him. So it's really not a good situation by either party. And so then Judah and Tamar end up having twin sons together through this deceit and dishonesty and all these things going on. So it's really not a great situation. But there's a couple of interesting things to note. We see Judah's confession. It seems like, seems to me that he's a little bit defeated and humbled by his loss, by losing two sons and then his wife as well. Uh, he seems a little defeated. In fact, he doesn't even try to, to deny it. When Tamar comes out and, and shows the items by representing who the father is, he doesn't even try to deny it. And he, he has a confession there where he says, she's been more righteous than I. And so you see that humility in Judah, and it's neat to see that, and that'll come up later as well. But you also see the Messianic family line starting to develop here as well. We see Perez or Perez was firstborn, and he would be the one through whom the Messiah would come. And we also see that the Messianic line is born through har harlotry, but that's the story of sinful humanity. So the summary of, of Genesis 38 is you see the focus on Judah as the representative leader of the brothers, start, starting to come into focus as the representative leader. And you also see the development of the messianic line. And again, even in tribulation, it's neat. Even in the self-inflicted misery, you still see the Messiah in the background. So now we move on to Genesis 39, which is another unsavory chapter. We see that Joseph excels under Potiphar, but that he's also falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And here we see that he, Joseph doesn't give in despite being uh, 
you know, wrongly accused. He's no doubt exasperated by all these things, but he actually excels in prison and does well, or I'm sorry, he excels for himself under Potiphar, and then he's given an undeserved prison sentence through the accusation of Potiphar's wife. So the poor, poor young guy just being in his 20s, just some 20-something years old and having all these enemies. But we can take encouragement from the story. We have Joseph's Old Testament example, and that complements the New Testament as well. Philippians 1, 27 through 30 states, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now hears in me. So, so Joseph, of course, had uh, no idea of Jesus per se, but um, he's suffering persecution just by living a righteous life, and he's suffering for it, but he trusts the Lord. We never see any indication of panic on his behalf or him having to take things into his own hand or getting, taking, these, uh, taking things into his own hand or... or making any really desperate moves or anything like that. But the Bible says that all who got, live godly will suffer persecution at some time. So we, we can expect that. But perseverance is a concept and a discipline that we need to have. Uh, there's many things that we may need to endure and to persevere through medical situations, financial persecution like Joseph, hornets, you know, home improvement, stuff like that. There, there's a lot that we may have to endure. Joseph's case in particular is, is really persecution and, and suffering despite not having done anything wrong. So Joseph here endures seemingly remaining blameless and lives out Philippians 2, 14 through 16. Again, the New Testament shedding light on things of the Old Testament examples, which we have. But Philippians 2, 14 through 16 says, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among, who, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, and that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. So again, Joseph not having the New Testament or knowing of Jesus the Messiah or anything like that, but he still honors the Lord. He, he recognizes that he would be sinning against heaven if he should commit adultery, and things like that. So he lives a, a righteous life, and so he's living righteously. He does suffer briefly for it. And these things, when they happen, and it doesn't mean you can't defend yourself and that you shouldn't defend yourself in some cases, and it doesn't mean that it's pleasant, but you, you push on through it and you persevere, just like having the mind of Joseph. So Joseph remains blameless in the midst of that generation, his brothers, in a sense, being that generation that would accuse him and and attack him uh, just because he was, he was favored, but he still hadn't done anything wrong against them. So you all know the rest of the story well. Genesis 40 through 45. So Joseph is placed in prison with two prisoners, the butler and the baker. The dreams that they each have, Joseph correctly interprets where the butler lives, but the baker dies. Then he's taken to Pharaoh, and he interprets his dreams as well. 
Then he's elevated to the number two position once the dream is, is um, interpreted and then he, Joseph has a plan ready. So Joseph is given royal apparel and clothing. He's seated in the number two position with the chariots. The population has to bow the knee. He's given an Egyptian bride all by the age of 30. And so by the time this all wraps up, he's 30 years old. Next, we see that there's a brutal famine that drives the brothers, the brothers to Egypt. He accuses them of being spies and keeps Simeon until Benjamin is brought back. Judah, again, steps into the leadership role by being a guarantee of Benjamin's return. When they go back to, they go back to Jacob and, and Judah steps in and, and he has a rational, rational plan to, uh, to be the guarantee, unlike Reuben, who offers to kill Reuben's own sons if he doesn't bring them back. Judah has a more rational plan and promises to bear, be a guarantee of Benjamin's return. So then they go back down to Egypt and Joseph plants the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. So that forces the brothers to return and reconcile. And this forces Judah again to, Judah again take the leadership role and Judah intercedes on Benjamin's behalf. So this is finally the moment that Joseph is waiting for to see his brothers taking accountability and he's waiting for that selfless moment. So Joseph can't take it anymore. He sends his servants out so he can deal with his brothers one-on-one -on -one and reveal himself to them. So he removes the mask of the pagan king, so to speak, and reveals himself. I know that's a lot of information. If you haven't reviewed Joseph, um, you could do that. We just covered nine chapters actually, so and hit some of the highlights from there. But uh, just ama an amazing story, and I, I was amazed by even though I had never read it at Ford's Theater when I saw the play. I, I love it. I still get choked up when I read about Joseph and, and Judah's confession and all those things. I just I love the story, but it's we see Joseph persevering without complaining. He waits on the Lord. He does everything unto the Lord without complaining, which is why he keeps being placed in elevated an elevated status, even with Jacob his father among his brothers and then under Potiphar, and then even in the prison, and then under Pharaoh directly. So quite a story there. But as I mentioned, there's almost this subplot where you see the relationship of the suffering believer to the actual suffering servant, the Messiah. And this is actually what I would call the greater plot. It's really not a subplot. It's actually the greater plot. Just a remarkable thing when you think about it. So when you think about the timing of this, think about how Moses is writing history from events 3,800 years ago. So Joseph's, Joseph lived and the events surrounding Joseph were about 1800 BC or 3,800 years ago. So then Moses, about 400 years later, so right around 1400 BC, a total of 3,400 years before our time now, so that's when Moses wrote the Pentateuch and wrote the, the history of these things. But amazingly, he would be writing history, the history of Joseph, that would also serve as prophecy, which would prophesy of things 1,400 years later at the time of Jesus. So what other book can do this that can actually write history and prophecy at the same time? So you think about it, if you were a first or second century Jew, and you were reading through Genesis and looking at the similarities between Joseph and Jesus, you'd be like, boy, there's a lot of things in parallel. In fact, even if you looked at 
Moses, and then you were looking at Jesus trying to figure out, okay, is Jesus the Messiah or not? And prophet, uh, Moses being the prophet likened to Moses, you'd have to say, boy, there's a lot of similarities. In fact, it's suggested that there's over a hundred. So this is really the greater plot of the ages. And there's actually things that point to our future as well, things that actually haven't happened yet. So looking at the parallels between Joseph and Jesus, but also remembering that we see a portrait of the Messiah even in our lives and in the life of Christians, even during trials. Again, Joseph was an innocent man that did good. So that's the first similarity between Joseph and Jesus. They were both basically innocent and they, they did good. We know, of course, Joseph had sin, whereas Jesus didn't have sin, but Joseph, Joseph still lived a righteous life. So that's our first similarity. Also, Joseph's brothers resented him and plotted to kill him, just like those with Jesus. Joseph, Joseph was stripped of his robe, his royalty, and his honor, as Jesus was as well. Joseph was placed in a pit. Joseph and Jesus both were sold for pieces of silver. Joseph was sold for less than the price of a slave, as I mentioned earlier. Jesus was, was sold for the price of a slave gored by an ox. And this demonstrates that they were both held in low esteem. Next, we see Joseph was falsely accused while blameless by, by Potiphar's wife here. And then they were both numbered with the transgressors. So Joseph being numbered with the baker and the butler, one of the transgressors would live, one would die. Just same thing with Jesus on the cross, the two thieves. You have the, one thief lives, one dies. And then you see Joseph being released and exalted, Jesus also being exalted released from the grave and exalted as well. They're both seated in the number two position. Joseph seated in the chariot, second to Pharaoh. Every knee bows to Joseph. Jesus also seated at the right hand of the Father. Every knee will have to bow to Jesus as well. Now here's where we come in as the church, if you're Gentile or Jewish. Uh, Jesus, Joseph marries a Gentile bride, an Egyptian bride. Jesus also marries a predominantly Gentile bride as well. So another neat parallel to the church. And then the most amazing part of the story of the future events, even future events for us. So this is looking back at events that happened 3,800 years ago, that there's things still in the future that are waiting to happen. So this, this is what's so amazing about this. We see the Gentile bride, the age of the church and all that. That's, that's part of it. And the church is still being added to but there are still things that are very distinct that are going to happen in the future as well. So we see during the time of Joseph that he would reveal himself during a seven-year trial and seven-year famine. So the, famines, the famine in Joseph's days foreshadows a spiritual famine as well, where there's, un, unprecedented, there's going to be unprecedented darkness. Amos refers to a famine for the hearing of the word of the Lord. So there's a seven-year period coming up in the future where Jesus is going to be revealing himself to the nation of Israel, to his brothers again. And this, we know, is Daniel's 70th week, the final seven-year period of this age. So just like Joseph had a seven-year period of famine, there's going to be a seven-year period as well where Jesus himself will be revealing himself to his Jewish brethren. This is also known as the time of Jacob's trouble 
And it's going to be a, a period of time of severe tribulation and trouble for the, not only for the, the Jewish nation, but for all nations, really. It's going to be a time of judgment and uh, refining as well. But the key thing to remember in the times of Joseph, when Judah repents, so Judah, again, representing all the brothers, and when he repents and he gives himself up to stand in the, in the place of, of Benjamin so that Benjamin can go back to Jacob, that's when Joseph reveals himself. It's going to be the same thing when you see Judah repenting or the nation of Israel repenting, then the Messiah will reveal himself. So again, Judah, Judah's selfless act is what causes this to happen. But there's something very interesting, and it's very subtle from the time of, jo- uh, the time of Judah's confession just before Joseph removes the appearance of being the pagan king, an Egyptian king, just before he he takes off his disguise, there's something very subtle that happens. And if you look closely at Genesis 45, verse 1, it states, Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. So this would seem to be a subtle and very exciting uh, suggestion of the rapture. So again, so Joseph here, just after Judah confesses, Joseph sends his Gentile servants away, the Gentile church being sent away and really the, the commission being finished at that point. And it's exciting to know that there's a time period where the church age is going to end, your work is done, the commission is finished. And the brothers we see are grieved here. In Zechariah chapter 12, it states, and they shall look upon me upon, sorry, look upon me whom they have pierced and shall mourn as one mourns for an only son. So the Jews, Jewish people are going to realize they had missed the Messiah. But we see, very, very interesting, a softening of the Jewish nation even today. More Jewish people today are coming to the Lord Jesus than any time since the first and second centuries in fact, I, I had just thought of this and I didn't get a chance to look it up. I think it's from Tree of Life Ministries, but you can see a video. I believe they put it out and it's entitled something like, Did We Miss Our Own Messiah? So you can look for that on, on YouTube and see. But there is a softening of the Jewish nation toward Jesus where there had been some uh, some maybe some concern about following Jesus, thinking that he's, he belongs to the Gentiles and so many things having been done, even back to the Crusades and things like that, where people just couldn't believe that people that would persecute the Jewish people would actually follow Jesus. And, and so some things have been done misrepresenting the Lord Jesus to the Jewish people. So I can understand their hesitation. But now they're opening up to... Jesus, and they're seeing testimonies of Jewish people, so it's very, very exciting to see this. You can go to One for Israel and see the testimonies there as well. So it's very exciting seeing this. You're, you're really kind of seeing prophecy being fulfilled before your very eyes. So again, remembering when Judah repents, Joseph reveals himself. When the Jews repent, Jesus the Messiah will re- reveal himself as well. So it, as we wrap it up, some verses for the church today, First Thessalonians chapter 3. Um, actually, I'm sorry, I take that back. I was going to look at corporate and national perseverance as well, and I particularly wanted to look at the book of Nehemiah and his leadership role. Nehemiah is one of my favorite characters for 
just in terms of tenacity and determination under extremely difficult circumstances, Joseph seemed to have his youth, and he kind of rolled with the punches, so to speak, in the innocence of youth, and he, he just let the Lord work it out, whereas Nehemiah was a decisive man of prayer and action, and I love seeing those two things go hand in hand. And really, he had just the pure force of will to get things done and to make things happen. But you see, it was never his will. He would always pray to the Lord before everything that he set his hands to, but then he would find a way to get it done. So he's, he's a great example. He's just very resourceful and just gets things too done. To, he just gets things done, uh, but he, he's never self-willed when he does it. And I just had too much fun to, to cover Joseph, and I wanted to, to go through that thoroughly. So I, we only had time to focus on the individual example. I actually wanted to go through some modern examples of perseverance, like, um, like modern war stories, things like that. But there may need to be a part two or a continuation. I always like to bring some history into the messages as well, but just had a little bit too much to cover. And Joseph is such a, just such an exciting character to study as well. I also wanted to look at some current developments. Uh, I always like to, to factor in recent developments in the, in the news and things like that in Middle East and, and just worldwide events. There's so much going on right now. I also wanted to talk about that, but again, we may need a part two. There is one critical biblical component that I find is just so important. It's really the key to unlocking future events, and there's amazing typology with this. I've studied it at length, but I still feel that I don't know the depth of it, but it's really critical for understanding the timing of events. And that one thing is something we'll have to study another time, so I'll, I'll keep you in suspense there. So back to 1 Thessalonians, uh, a couple of encouraging verses for the church. 1 Thess Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul acknowledges the persecution of the church at Thessalonica and commends their steadfastness. And so the church is being persecuted. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul speaks of sending Timothy to continue the work Paul had started there. In verse 3 of, of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, it states that no one should be taken, I'm sorry, shaken by these afflictions, for you, you yourself know that we are appointed to this. For, in fact, we told you before, when we were with you, that we would suffer tribulation, just as it happened, and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. So Timothy, thankfully, brings back a good report to Paul of their faithfulness. Paul commends them again in verse 12, and this is an encouragement for us in the church as well, part of the perseverance of the saints. This is what he says in verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness, before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So the last part to end on an encouraging note, in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul corrects some behavioral issues, but then at the very end of chapter 4, he has to make a, a big correction. The believers were concerned that they were, that those that had already died would be missing out on Jesus' Jesus's coming. So starting at verse 13, he starts to address this. And in verse 15, he says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep, who basically died. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Notice the emphasis on the dead in Christ will rise first. And some of you may be thinking of Joseph Joseph, as we've been looking at him and in, in all the types surrounding Joseph. There's one last interesting one. It's this mysterious passage at the very end of Joshua where you see the children of Israel entering Israel's borders after all these years. So after all the years being away, Joshua is leading the people back to the, to the promised land. And so you have the people entering. But in Joshua 24, 32, it says, the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. So Shechem is just a very short distance from Dothan, Dothan, where Joseph was sold by his brothers. But it's interesting that as you see after these centuries of being away from their land, as the nation of Israel is heading back into the land, they actually have Joseph with them, and Joseph's bones being a type of the dead in Christ entering the promised land with those that are alive. So even, even after he's gone, Joseph is still speaking to us in type. And so that's just a neat picture of what Paul is speaking of, how the dead in Christ will be with those that are alive and then will be joined together with the Lord Jesus. So very encouraging, knowing that we're a forward-looking people, knowing that you may have periods of trial, tribulation, whatever that may be, but we trust in the Lord in all things. With that, let's go before the Lord. Father, we thank you and praise you. Thank you for your word. Again, how it instructs and encourages us, Lord. And we thank you for the blessing of knowing you as our Savior. And we thank you for the people that have gone before us, Lord, that we may learn from them and apply these passages to our lives. We thank you. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.